there may exist a very real supernatural world and you know we may be drawn to it because we're meant to be a part of it maybe Triggered. Who she didn't trigger? Somebody's with her. That's what you say in the book. So, are you a universalist who believes that everyone can go to heaven regardless of how they respond to Christ on earth? Um, intellectual universalism is dangerous. Thinking that in the end everyone is going to be okay. But functional universalism is worse. Living like in the end everyone is going to be okay. Heaven or hell on earth, no matter what religion you are, like accept pe other people's idea, okay? Because have you ever been to heaven? Have you ever seen it? Like, it's just not my beliefs that, you know, a, a just God will make you burn for eternity for some people, free will that he gave you. This is the question for you. What do you think happens when we die? We are currently in a series called The Unknown. And for the past three weeks as a church, we've been wrestling with some pretty heavy questions as it relates to the supernatural realm. In week one of this series, we, we wrestled with the question, do angels and demons really exist? In week two of this series, we, we looked at the question, what is heaven going to be like? And in week three, we wrestled with the question, is hell a real place? And we've said right out of the gate during this series, there are some things about these topics that we know without a shadow of a doubt to be true. But there are other things as it relates to these topics that we really don't know for sure. And we've talked about an application statement that I think is so powerful. And I want us to look at it as we start this morning. Because it's so important based on the topics that we're talking about in this series. Here's, here's the application statement. The things we know provide an unshakable foundation in the midst of things we don't know. As we talk about angels and demons and heaven and hell and the end of the world and what happens when you die, listen, there are some things from the Bible that we know without a shadow of a doubt to be true. And I'm so thankful for those things and the foundation that they lay. But there are also some things that we don't know. Well, this week, we come to another very heavy question. Here's our question for this morning. Is the world really coming to an end. There are few subjects that spark greater interest than the study of end time events. Regardless if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, regardless if you think some of the things we're talking about are skeptical, 
most people enjoy engaging in some type of study of what is going to happen if and when the world comes to an end. And throughout history, thousands upon thousands of professors and scientists and astronomers and even pastors have made very, very bold predictions about the end of the world. Many people have stood up and with great sincerity made predictions, but they have been sincerely wrong. A couple of examples. In 1919, a respected American meteorologist caused widespread panic when he announced that the conjunction of six planets on December the 17th, 1919, was going to cause the world to explode. False prediction. Another false prediction happened in 1999. How many of you remember the phenomenon that was Y2K? It was said that a small computer oversight was going to cause planes and computers and our society to shut down when the clock went from 1999 to the year 2000. Once again, false prediction. Another prediction came in the year 2012. It was said that when the Mayan calendar ended on December the 21st, 2012, that the world was going to come to an end. Once again, false prediction. Is the world really going to come to an end? And if it is, what's that going to be like? And how is it going to happen? Well, what I want us to do this morning in order to gain as much clarity as possible about this question I want us to look at what Jesus had to say about the end of the world. So if you have a Bible this morning, would you turn with me to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, chapter 24. And what we're about to read took place just before Jesus ascended into heaven. Many historians believe that what we're about to read happened on the Wednesday before the Friday when Jesus Christ went to the cross. Jesus had been teaching in the temple all day. And as he leaves the temple, his disciples are waiting for him. And they have a very heavy question about the future that they're going to ask Jesus. So look with me in Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? 
And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age or the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. What I want to do this morning in our short time together is I want to share with you from this passage three things we know about the end of the world. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that is mysterious. But I want us all this morning to wrap our hearts around three things we can know for sure. And here's the first one. We know that one day the world will come to an end. We know that one day the world as we know it will come to an end. The disciples here are really posing for Jesus the same question that we're talking about this morning. Is the world coming to an end? And if it is, what are the signs that we should be looking for? And Jesus immediately makes a reference to the temple. You see, for these disciples, they really felt like the temple was going to be there forever. And Jesus says something to them that was inconceivable. He says, there's coming a day when this temple that you see is going to be torn down. There's not going to be one stone of the temple that is left unturned. And for these disciples, they didn't understand it. You see, they could not conceive how the greatest architectural wonder in the Middle East would one day be entirely destroyed. In essence, Jesus says to them right out of the gate, Yes, there is coming a day when the world will come to an end. And you can just imagine Jesus, knowing what awaited him with the cross and the resurrection, speaking to them with absolute assurance as the eternal Son of God. You see, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, sees the first day just like he sees the last day. There was nothing about what's going to happen in the future that could bring surprise to Jesus because ultimately God controls the timing and the way that the world will come to an end. 
You say, that's, that's a pretty bold statement, pastor. Well, that's right, but it's true. Ultimately, God controls the way and the timing by which the world will come to an end. Let me show it to you in the scriptures. In the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul is writing to a church called Colossae, and he's describing Jesus. And here's what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and look at this phrase, and in him all things hold together. In 2013, we have laws of physics that explain how planets and galaxies are governed. We have laws of matter, universal laws of gravitation, laws of motion, laws of thermodynamics. Let me ask you something. Who makes sure that all those things happen? Who makes sure that the sun rises and sets? That the moon is in the right place? That you and I have air to breathe? Who, who's, who's maintaining all those things? Well, according to Colossians chapter 1... Jesus holds all those things together. The universe functions the way it's supposed to because God is holding it all together. Now let me compare and contrast that scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing about the day of the Lord or the end of the world. Listen to what he says in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord, or the end of the world, will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and, look at this phrase, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The word element there means smallest particle. He's saying the biggest things on earth and the smallest things on earth are going to be destroyed. Now this word destroyed is so interesting. It's a word that literally means to let go or to loosen. Now let's think about the pictures in the scripture. Colossians chapter 1 says Jesus is holding everything together. The universe, the planets, the galaxies, the sun, the moon, the air we breathe. Jesus is making sure those things function the way they're supposed to function. And then in 2 Peter, the Bible says there's coming a day when all of the things Jesus is holding together, he's going to let go of. He's going to loosen and the world as we know it is going to come to an end. But you see, when that moment happens, when the end of the world takes place, that is just the beginning. 
That is the moment when the temporary will pass away and we will all enter into eternity. Look at this verse from the book of Isaiah. He's talking about when the world ends. God says, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth. I love this part. And no one will even think about the old ones anymore. The first thing you and I can know as it relates to the end of the world is we know the world is coming to an end. The God who created it and holds it all together one day will let go. Here's the second thing that we know about the end of the world. We know what the condition of the world will be like when it ends. We know what the condition of this world will be like when it ends. In Jesus' conversation with his disciples, Jesus does not talk about timing. He does not say, hey, you guys can plan for this year, of this month, of this day. He doesn't talk about timing, but here's what he does talk about. He talks about conditions and he talks about events. He shares with us in Matthew chapter 24 some of the things that are going to be happening when the world ends. Now, there have been thousands of people who have spent their lives trying to pinpoint the exact time that the world will come to an end. And every single one of them have been wrong. In 1987, a book was released. This is unbelievable. A book was released called 88 Reasons That the World Will End in 1988. So you go through 88. At the end of 1988, another book came out that was entitled 89 Reasons the World Will End in 1989. I'm not making this stuff up. One of the groups that is the most infamous for trying to pinpoint the exact time that the world will end have been the Jehovah's Witnesses. Nine different times they have said with great passion and sincerity that the world would end in 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975, and 1984. And every single time, they have been wrong. Well, why is that? Well, that's because Jesus doesn't tell us about timing. He even goes on to say in Matthew chapter 21, but no one knows the day or the hour. He doesn't talk to us about timing, but he does talk to us about conditions, about some of the events that we can look for just before the world comes to an end. And he compares these conditions or these events to labor pains or the birth of a child. He gives the imagery of a mother who is ready for her child to come forth. She, he says, you will see these same birth pains when the world is ready for King Jesus to come forth. 
Listen to this statement from the New American Commentary. Like a woman's contractions before her labor and delivery, these preliminary events remind one of the nearness and inevitability of Christ's return. But just as a woman may experience false labor and just as genuine contractions still leave her uncertain about the exact time of delivery, so too these events do not enable us to predict the time of Christ's coming. So to help us understand this very quickly, I want to share with you six conditions of the world at the end. We don't know everything about these, but based off what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 24, these are some of the conditions that will be true of the world just before it ends. Six conditions. Here's the first one. Widespread deception. There will be deception by false teachers. Jesus says, hey, at the end of the world, it's going to create fertile soil for deception to take place. He says there are going to be people who step up and say, I'm the Messiah, or who teach false teachings, and they're going to lead many people astray. Another condition that Jesus mentions is warfare among nations. He says in verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars everywhere. That's a second condition of the world at the end. A third condition, global devastation. Global devastation. And specifically what Jesus highlights here is famine and earthquakes. Did you know that right now, There are one billion people who are hungry, who have limited access to food. Did you know that globally, 28 people die every minute of hunger-related causes? According to the American Red Cross, natural disasters have increased fourfold over the last 20 years. One of the conditions of the world, just before it ends, is global devastation. A fourth condition is persecution of believers. The Bible says that just before the world ends, believers will be persecuted like never before. Did you know that more Christians have died for their faith in the last 100 years than in all the previous centuries combined? Another condition of the world just before it ends is extreme persecution of the church. A fifth condition is the exposure of pretenders. Verse 10 in Matthew chapter 24 says, At that time, many will fall away. What does that mean? Well, what I think that means is that because of the intense persecution that's going to be happening globally to the church, 
that some people who profess outwardly to be Jesus followers, because of the intense persecution, are going to say, listen, that was something I portrayed outwardly that was never true inwardly. There are people who are pretending to follow Jesus, but because of the persecution, the cost will be too great for them. And they'll say, I've been, I've been personifying that I'm a believer, but really, my heart's never been changed by the gospel. The Bible says that's going to be another condition at the end of the world. And the sixth condition that Jesus really speaks to in Matthew 24 is this. Extensive preaching of the gospel. Now up to this point, all of the conditions Jesus has given us have been negative. Famine, earthquakes, wars, deception, they've all been negative. But the last one he speaks to in verse 14 is positive. Here's what he said. He said, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The Bible is clear that before the end of the world takes place, every people group on the planet will have an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. And what's so powerful about that is that even in the midst of chaotic world events, you still see God's heart inviting humanity to know him. That's powerful. How are we doing on that one? As you think about the world and every people group on the planet having an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel, how, how, how's that tracking? Well, according um, to the Joshua Project, 41.1% of people in the world are considered unreached. Now, here's what that means. That means 41% of the people on the planet have little or no access to the gospel. That represents 2.9 billion people. But here's what the scripture is teaching us. Before the world comes to an end, every one of those people groups who right now have limited access to the gospel are going to have an opportunity to clearly hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know everything, but those are some of the conditions that Jesus says the world will be in just before it comes to an end. So, so what do we draw from that? I mean, it's great to have a list there, but what can we conclude this morning looking at those conditions? Well, I think there are a couple things. One, most of these conditions are becoming more and more common in the world we live in. But things are going to get worse before they get better. Another conclusion, and this is so critical. Our responsibility is not to debate about when the world will end. That's not our role as the church. If you came in this morning thinking, this morning at church, we're going to have a debate about when the world is going to end. You totally missed the series. 
Our responsibility is not to debate about when the world is going to end. Our responsibility is to live on mission as long as we are here. That's what we're to be about. Knowing Christ and making him known. That's what's to receive our passion and our energy. And I'll be honest with you. As I studied this week, there's such a tension. And I think it's a healthy tension. As I think about the end times and the condition that the world is in and the condition that the world is going to be in, I believe there's a healthy tension for all believers. And here's the tension. Wanting and longing to leave this world and go be with Jesus in eternity. That's one side. But the other side is tenderheartedness for those on the planet who have never embraced the gospel. I believe that's to be our tension. And I hope for us, anytime we talk about end times events or the end of the world, that that tension always surfaces in us. Would it be easier today if the world ended and all of the believers went to be with Jesus in heaven for eternity? Absolutely. But he hasn't come back yet. And we're to live with the tension that, yes, it's going to be glorious and great there. But we're still to have broken hearts for the people today who have no love relationship with Jesus. We know that the world will come to an end. One day, the world will come to an end. We also know the conditions that the world will be in when it ends, here's the third thing that we know. We know that what will bring the world to an end is the return of Jesus Christ. We know that what is going to bring the world to an end is the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that when the world is at its darkest, at its darkest, most chaotic moment, King Jesus will return literally, visibly, and in all his glory. You say, how how do you know that? Well, in Acts chapter 1, The Bible records the moment when Jesus left the earth and ascended into heaven. Jesus was on the planet for 33 years. He he was killed, murdered. He came back to life. He gives a commission to his disciples. And the Bible says he, he literally floated up. He ascended into heaven. And the Bible says that his disciples are looking up thinking, what in the world just took place? And an angel appears. And here's what the angel says to those disciples who were looking up in the sky with their jaws hanging down. Here's what the angel says. He says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. When the world is at its its darkest, Jesus will literally and visibly return in all his glory.
John MacArthur makes this statement. The fact of the second coming is clear. But the specifics regarding the how and when it will all occur are set in great mystery. The clearest way that I've ever heard the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus explained, we've taught it here at Hope Before, is like a play in a Broadway theater or a show. Many of us have been to maybe a show on the strip or you've been to a show at Broadway. It's one overarching story, but it has multiple scenes. It has multiple acts. And what many people don't understand about the return of Jesus is that it is going to happen in two different acts. And because we don't understand that it's going to happen in two different scenes, we get very, very confused as we read the scripture about what's going to take place. Here are the two acts that are going to take place when Christ returns. First of all, Christ will return for his church. Christ will return for his church. Well, how, how do we interpret that? What, what are the descriptions in the Bible that tell us about that first act? Well, the Bible describes it to be like a thief in the night. The Bible says it will come on the world all at once before anyone realizes it. You may have heard this referred to as the rapture. First Corinthians says that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he will come back and he will take his church with him. And that the dead will be raised, that bodies will be glorified, and the family of God will be reunited. That's the first act. That in a moment, before the world, world even knows what's happening, the Bible says there will be two in the field and one will be gone and one will be left standing. That it will happen in a moment. It could happen any moment. That's the first act. Christ will return for his church. He says two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. It'll happen before we even realize what's going on. But there's a second act. Not just Christ returning for his church. Here's the second act as it relates to the return of Jesus. The church will return with Christ. The church will return with Christ. Now, in the first act, it happened without anybody realizing it. It's gonna take place in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, we're gonna be gone. Christ will return for his church. In the second act, it's going to be the complete opposite. The Bible says when Christ returns with his church, all of the world is going to see it. There's going to be no mistake about what's going on. You see, when Jesus came to earth as a baby, it was, it was in a secluded place in a small manger. But in the second act, when the church returns with Christ, it will be something that all the world will see. It won't be a secret all of the globe is going to know what's coming on. 
He will return as king, as ruler, and as Lord. The Bible teaches that his coming coming will be accompanied with a loud command from what will sound like the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God. And all of those sounds will be heard around the world. Adrian Rogers says this way, there are two phases to the coming of our Lord Jesus. First, there will be the rapture when he comes for his bride. And then there will be the Lord coming with his bride in power and glory. And that's very important to understand. We know that what will bring the world to an end is the return of Jesus Christ. And that return is going to happen in two different acts. The first one will be very quick in the twinkling of an eye. The second act will be Jesus Christ in all power, glory, authority, and dominion to make things right. But there's one other piece of this, and it's where I want us to conclude today, that we know is going to happen in concert with the end of the world. And that's judgment. Now, for a lot of these things, we could debate and have different convictions in terms of the timing that all these things are going to happen. But we know, and we can all agree, that one day Christ will return, and one day there will be a judgment for every single person. But here's what most people don't understand about judgment. There will be two different judgments. One for those who have a relationship with God and another for those who do not have a relationship with God. So as we conclude this morning, I want to share with you about those two judgments because I want us all to be clear as we think about the reality that the world is going to end. These are some of those things as you talk about your faith in our city and around the world and as you journey in your relationship with God, these are things that are so critical for all of us to understand. The first setting, the first judgment, one of the judgments that will take place is called the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is a judgment for believers. This is a judgment for those who have a relationship with God. The end of that verse says, whether good or bad. That word bad could, probably a better translation would be to say worthless or useless. The judgment for believers is called the judgment seat of Christ. Well, what is that going to look like? What's going to happen at that judgment for those who have a relationship with God? Well, let me be very clear about one thing that is not going to happen. At the judgment seat of Christ, believers will not be judged for their sin. As I was growing up, 
as a Christian, one of the ideas I had in my mind is that there was going to be a throne that God was going to be on in a really, really long line. And everything I had ever done in my life was going to be on a big screen that I had to watch beside my mother. If you are a believer, your sin has been paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, all of the judgment, all of the punishment, and all of the wrath for sin was poured out on him. He was a sacrifice and a substitute for all of those who would put their faith in him. He took on the full brunt of the penalty of sin as a sacrifice and as a substitute so that you and I, as we put our faith in him, would never have to stand before God in judgment for our sin. So first and foremost, I want you to understand that. The Bible says he has separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. And the judgment seat of Christ is not a place where believers will be judged for their sin. But we will be judged. The Bible says here, we will be judged based on our deeds in the body. The Bible says that what we've done for the sake of the kingdom of God will be tested. All of the things that you have done in Jesus' name are going to be tested to see if they were genuine. And every believer, as God tests those works or those deeds, it's going to come out as one of two things. That they were genuine deeds that were done in dependence on God His life in us producing eternal fruit. They were genuine and they were real. Or it'll be seen that they were simply dead works of our flesh. He says, you will be judged based on your deeds in the body. We each as believers will appear before Jesus And all of the things we have done as believers for the sake of the kingdom of God will be tested. And in that moment, you have to know we're going to see ourselves for who we really are. Our attitudes, our motives, our actions. And the Bible says, based on those things that are proved to be genuine and real, that were done as his life in us that produced eternal fruit, we will receive rewards. Now here's what's so unbelievable. The reason that the works in us were genuine is only because it was Jesus' life in us being pressed out. But the Bible says he's gonna give us rewards based off what he has done through us. You say, that's crazy. That's grace. The Bible says there will be a moment when the God of heaven applauds those things that we've done for the sake of his kingdom and his righteousness. And honestly, there's some things about that moment I don't really know, but here's what I do believe. We will not be focused on what we have done wrong. We will be overwhelmed by all that he has done right through us. 
and we will be inspired to love him more. For the believer, at the judgment seat of Christ, our works, our deeds in the body will be tested. And they will prove to be genuine or they will prove to be dead works of our flesh that were done out of our own resources for our own glory. But there's a second judgment. There's a second setting, if you will. And this setting is not for believers. It's not for those who are followers of Jesus. It's for those who do not have a relationship with God. And if you're here today, and maybe you don't know Christ, here's what I want you to know. Everything I'm about to share with you in the next few minutes, I share with you from a broken heart. Because what I'm about to share with you is not what God desires for you. God desires for every person to come into a relationship with him and be saved. And even today, if you would choose to do that, you can know him. But there is a second judgment for those who reject the person of Christ, and it's called the great white throne judgment. It's what the book of Revelation says. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged. And every one of them according to their deeds. And if anyone, anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What's going to take place at this judgment? Well, the Bible teaches that there are going to be some books opened. And one of those books records every single sin that a person who does not embrace Christ on earth has committed. And those sins are going to be read and they are going to have to give an account before God for the sins that they're guilty of. Now, once again, That's not God's desire. He made a way so that no person on the planet has to experience that. But in this judgment, that's going to take place. And the Bible also says there'll be another book opened. It's called the book of life. And every person who is listed in that book has a relationship with God. And if a name is not found in that book, that person will be condemned to an eternity separated from God. You say, why does this judgment have to take place? Why can't God just just let everybody in because he's a loving God? I would agree with you that God is a loving God. But even more than that, God is a holy God. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. He can't tolerate it. Even when sin that did not belong to Jesus was found on him, God was forced to turn his back on his only son. Because of God's holiness, he cannot tolerate sin. And this judgment at the great white throne is once and for all going to clarify that God is above all things holy. And cannot tolerate or being the presence of sin. 
Now, thankfully, through the grace of Jesus, you and I can know him and worship him and walk with him because we've been covered by the blood of his son and he sees us like he sees Jesus as perfect and holy and righteous, not because of us, but because of his grace. I want to read a statement by Randy Alcorn that hopefully will help us this morning. He says, we will never question God's justice, wondering how he could send good people to hell. Rather, we'll be overwhelmed with grace, marveling at what he did to send bad people to heaven. In heaven, we'll see clearly that God revealed himself to each person and that he gave opportunity for each heart or conscience to respond to him. Everyone deserves hell. No one deserves heaven. Jesus went to the cross to offer salvation to all. God is absolutely sovereign and doesn't desire any to die without Christ. Yet many will perish in their unbelief. We know that one day the world will come to an end. We know what the conditions of the world will be like at the end. And we know that what will bring the world to, the end, to an end is the return of Jesus Christ. I want to read one more statement by Adrian Rogers and then we're going to have some time to respond this morning. Dr. Rogers said this, We are on a collision course with destiny. Soon and very soon the king will come. And we cannot afford to be ignorant or indifferent. Many people all around are perplexed and they need to hear the good news. Sorrow looks backwards, worry looks around, but faith looks upward. Are you setting the example for the world to see? Hopeful and faithful to look for his return. The King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, I want to invite you this morning to embrace the gospel. The fact that even though we don't deserve a relationship with God, through the person of Jesus, through his sacrifice and his life, God invites us to know him and be forgiven of sin and have the assurance of eternity with him in heaven. If there's never been a moment like that for you, today may be that day. And as we transition to a moment of response this morning, that's the invitation. The invitation this morning is to Jesus. It's not to church. It's not to a preacher. It's to embrace the soon coming King, Jesus Christ.